0: Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothie with this week's message. Hello and welcome to our eighth sermon in this series called The Guardian, a study of the Ten Commandments. This sermon is going to explore the eighth commandment. And to begin, I'd like to make a confession. I love sin. I love sin, and I know that so do you. Let me explain because it might surprise you to come and listen to a sermon and hear the pastor on your screen start by confessing that I love sin. But what I'm willing to acknowledge to all of you is something that I'm sure you would admit too. Look, what I do not mean when I say that I love sin is that I love my sin. No, the sin that I personally commit. No, those I really hate and I repent of them and I wish that I would not do them. I do not love my sin and I know that you don't love your sin. But when I say that we love sin, I mean this. We love talking about sin and sinners when we should not. Admit it, we love sin or at least talking about it. When a celebrity or a politician falls from grace, a real ironic statement by the way, we love to discuss the juicy juicy details of the scandal. When a famous athlete gets caught doing something that is illegal, we devour the headlines to hear everyone's take and then we regurgitate whatever hot take sounds the best to us. And someone when we know does something that is morally wrong, we find other people just to deliver this line. So, did you hear? We love sin in a twisted sort of way based on the fact that we talk about it. We talk about sinners when we should not. If the eighth commandment says, We should not talk or even love talk about sin. We should not even do it. Yes, even when we know someone has sinned and even when we know they're guilty, what the eighth commandment states is that we should still in that moment guard a person's reputation. After all, that's why God gave the Eighth Commandment. God is the guardian of people's names and reputations. Yes, even people like celebrities, athletes, and politicians. And your next-door neighbor. And everyone, you and I, who do sinful stuff. The pastor and author, Kevin DeYoung, wrote an article commentating on the Eighth Commandment. It's a convicting read. In it, He said this, am I really like the devil when I reinterpret every story to benefit me and purposefully reconstruct the facts of every narrative to make my point? How easy it is to assume the worst about those I don't like or don't know, especially people who seem bigger than me, athletes, politicians, celebrities, unlike me, different faith, different colors, different politics, or far from me in physical or relational distance how challenging it can be in pressure packed moments to speak the truth candidly, how difficult it is to guard my neighbor's good name. The author not only hit the nail on the head regarding the fact that we love talking about sinners when we should not, he also nailed us because we really are in this love-hate relationship with sin. Not only is it easy to assume the worst about sinners, How challenging to speak the truth candidly. How difficult to guard my neighbor's good name. On top of our obsession with talking about sinners when we should not, we loathe talking to sinners when we should. It's painfully, dreadfully hard to talk to someone we know whom we know has sinned. We would rather go to someone else a 100 times before we actually go to talk to our neighbor about their sin. Say, pastor, did you hear that they did this? Hey, did you hear that so-and-so did that? Look, I get paid to talk to people about their sins. As a pastor, it's my job. Yet sometimes, it's just plain hard to do. While the Eighth Commandment states, that you and I should not give false testimony against our neighbor, consider the opposite. You shall give true testimony to your neighbor. That means that we should go to our neighbor and speak true things to our neighbor in love, even when the truth hurts. Did you know that God's word says there are times when we should speak to a sinner about their sin? It's a divinely given moral obligation for every Christian. Jesus said in Luke 17, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Christians can't ignore sins. Christian love demands that we talk about the problem of sin for the spiritual well being of the people we love. But it's hard. And so, so often, we don't talk to sinners when we should. It's funny, isn't it? We spend a lot of time talking about sin in church, what it is how you do sins, why you shouldn't do sins, and especially we talk about how God fixed the problem of sin, how God removes sin, how God forgives sins, but rarely if ever do we talk about how we should handle the sins of others. That's crazy, right? Because we live in a world where you cannot go one minute without seeing sin. We never talk about how spiritual people should handle the sins of others So in this sermon, we're going to take a look at a passage in which Jesus himself tells us with step-by-step clarity how he wants us to handle the sin of sinners. But first, we need to look at how God handles our sins to see not just the master sin handler himself, but we need to see this so you and I, people who, who sin, well, we hear the good news that our God speaks to us as he handles the sins of everybody. The passage that we're gonna look at in this sermon comes from Matthew 18, verse 15 through 18. But to see how God handles sin, including our own, we're first going to look at two sections of scripture that really kind of sandwich our scripture lesson. In these verses, which were read in total in our worship service, we are gonna see how important each and every soul is to our Lord as he communicates two ideas that are central to the gospel the intimacy of Christ's forgiveness and the immensity of Christ's forgiveness. First, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12 says this What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go look? for the one that wandered off. He finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. How does God handle sinners? How does he handle sin? He does so with complete recklessness. He is so affectionate, so caring for each and every sinner, including you, that he leaves 99 saints to go chase down the one. Just think about the courage of Christ. Okay, but also the compassion that Christ demonstrates for you and me in this, to leave the safety and the certainty of heaven to go and cover over his lost sheep, you and I with his strong, protective love, that is what our God does to us and our sin. He looks for you. He seeks you out. And when he finds you, he cloaks you with his honor and his righteousness after we have been completely dishonorable and utterly unrighteous. He risks it all, including his life, to call you back home. And then, when you and I get home, Then he throws us a party out of pure happiness that his sinner saint is home. This is Christ for you. This is the intimacy of Christ's forgiveness, which the gospel proclaims to you. How does God handle sins? He handles it in the complete opposite way of people who love to gossip about sin. He handles it with the intimacy, the personal, familiar closeness of a shepherd's care for a sheep. This is the intimacy of Christ's forgiveness. As the song goes, this is the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. Still, Christ gives himself away for you. Okay, remember, we're talking about the two sections of scripture that sandwich our main text for today. So in the verses coming just after the step-by-step guide to how we are to handle sinners, Jesus tells one more parable demonstrating this time the immensity of his forgiveness. I won't read the whole parable because I don't wanna spoil the dramatic ending, but I will share a few verses in which Jesus compares himself to the king and us to his servants. Matthew 18, verse 23, therefore, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master, the master ordered that he pay he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. 10,000 bags of gold. That was the equivalent of 20 years, 20 years of your entire earnings, Imagine working for a company that paid you well for 20 years and then the head of the government, the king says, you owe it all. Pay it back or sit in prison. We'd be stuck. We'd be so out of luck. There's nothing that you and I could do. That's one. The king of kings and lord of lords, your loving God, wonderfully, benevolently, gracefully canceled the entire debt. You're free to go. This is the immensity of Christ's forgiveness. See yourself in this story as the one who has everything, everything forgiven by Christ your king and has nothing to pay back. That is who you are and that is how Christ deals with sin, with the immensity of his forgiveness. Look, this, this is explosive because it means you are totally free because of the gospel to go and be free from the debt of sin and guilt that you owe. The immensity of Christ's forgiveness and your gospel freedom means that you are set free from judgment and therefore you do not need to judge or talk about the sins of others. Do you realize what this means for us as we handle sin? Understanding the deep intimacy of Christ's forgiveness and the sheer immensity of your sins that have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, it means you are the most free and you have the least to fear when it comes to handling sin because you know how unconditionally, ridiculously, and recklessly you have been loved by God. Therefore, from that position, you can handle the sins of others because you know the love with which God has handled yours. You know the intimate forgiveness and the immense forgiveness that you have from Christ, and Christ has that same intimate, immense forgiveness for others too. And you get to tell others about it. Which leads us to a very pressing question. How do we handle the sin of sinners? How do we do so in a way where we don't sin? How do I talk to my friend about her sin, but not make her the talk of the town? How do I react when I hear of my neighbor's sin, but draw near to him instead of run in the other direction? Well, in Matthew chapter 15, sandwiched between those gloriously gospel-packed verses we just looked at, Jesus himself gives us a step-by-step guide, which is not meant as a legalistic protocol, but a gospel-centered approach for how sinners should handle other sinners. So let's go through each step. Here is step number one, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won them over. First, the fact that Christ refers to the person who sins as your brother or sister is very significant. Jesus is saying that your stance, your tone towards a Christian when handling their sin is not treating them like they're the spawn of Satan or some Philistine, but they are your brother or sister, and not one that you have a sibling rivalry with. They are your brother and sister whom you love and care for most of all. Secondly, yes. You are to convince them, convict them they sinned and point out how they did something that God in his word forbids. But as difficult and scary as that sounds, consider this. Could it be that in all honesty, they're unaware of their sin and they simply need to have it brought to their attention by someone who loves them? So yes, when we handle sin, we need to talk about the ugly reality of sin but this point cannot be emphasized enough. You are to do so just between the two of you. You are to go to them in private. You're not to go to your best friend or even to your pastor, not first anyway. You are to go to them one-on-one, nobody else involved. If you come to me, and some of you have, and you say, Pastor, I noticed that she isn't in church do you know what I have and will always say to you? I'll say, I'm so glad that you care about them. Have you talked to her? If someone ever comes to me, and this they haven't, and they say, hey pastor, I see that he is living in sin, I will always say, I'm so glad that you care about what God's word says. Now stop breaking the eighth commandment and go to him yourself. That's what God's word tells us to do. Yes, this requires self-denial and courage, but think of what that communicates to those you love. It tells your brother and sister that we feel for them, that you love them. Most of all, it points them to the courage and the compassion that Christ showed you and me and them. Now, here's step number two, but before we go there, I want you to notice the goal in all of this. It never changes. Your goal is to win your brother or sister over. That means we share the word of God with them, get them to see their sin, but most of all, we get them to see their savior. We get them to see Jesus and know that they are unconditionally, ridiculously, and recklessly loved by God. That's the aim and our number one goal, And that's step number one in how sinners are to handle other sin. But what if they don't see their sin and listen to you? Well, that takes us to step number two, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others, wait. Take the troops and lead the village out with pitchforks and torches. Even here at step number two, Jesus could not make it clearer that privacy is to be maintained as he encourages one, maybe two people to go with you. And Jesus then tells us why we're to take one or two trusted Christians. Take them so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's step number two. The additional people are not to intimidate, but to impress on our brother or sister, the seriousness of sin and the sincerity of Christ's love for them. But step number three, if they still refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice that this step is not tattletaling. It is not tattletaling, or it is tattletaling if you go first to the pastor and say, hey, so-and-so sinned. However, In step number three, the obvious and overwhelming hope and prayer is that this step will take the united loving heart from the church and that will be enough to touch the heart of the sister or brother who has sinned. And always the number one goal. It's that they see their savior and that they know the intimacy of Christ's forgiveness, the immensity of his forgiveness, which we all need and we all have. Step number four. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That sounds harsh, even unforgiving, that we treat them like a pagan or tax collector. But for a moment, let's suspend our American understanding of those two terms. And consider what our Savior was communicating when he said this is how we're to handle sin. Pagans and tax collectors are compared here for a reason. It's because they share two things in common. First, they were people outside of God's people. And second, they were outside of God's family, not because they were victims or by chance, but because they chose to be. They refused to listen to God calling them home, inviting them, but instead they willfully, intentionally, knowingly, stubbornly did the opposite of what God said to do. And I think you and I need to grasp that. We need to grasp that as we think about how we handle sin, because there is not one sin that gets a Christian kicked out of the church. There are not seven deadly sins that disqualify you from the church. I mean that. Adultery won't get you kicked out of the church. Theft won't get you kicked out. Lying won't get you kicked out. Addictions won't get you kicked out. Poor prioritizations and not worshiping and celebrating the sacraments won't get you kicked out of the church. But you know what, Will? When your friend and then more friends And then your church community, which cares about you and comes to you lovingly, gently, and says to you, stop sinning. Turn from sin and and see your Savior, that man upon the cross, he loves you. But you say, no. No, I'd rather stay in my sin. That'll get you kicked out. And that's a sad day. But even when those who we care about end up being called something other than our brother and sister in Christ? How do we handle them? How do we handle sinners? Well, remember how Jesus reacted when one sheep left the flock. It's worth noting that Jesus always considers both tax collectors and pagans, people and objects of his love and forgiveness, people whom he desperately wants the good news of his gospel proclaimed to, people he wants to know the intimacy and the immensity of his forgiveness. So we always show it, because I think it's no secret that so many people have been hurt by how Christians and how the Christian church has handled sin. You probably know someone, or maybe you've experienced this yourself. You want to know why many churches tend to be the scariest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down? It's not that Christians and Christian churches forget these steps to handle sin that Jesus himself gave us. The reason sinful people hurt other sinful people is because Christians and Christian churches forget the gospel. They forget the gospel, the point of departure for anyone dealing with sin, Jesus Christ and his intimate and immense forgiveness. And it's when we forget the gospel that we sin in the way we handle sinners. Christian individuals and Christian churches may say that they're all about the gospel and they may use the word grace, but when we forget the gospel of grace and react to the sin of a sinner by kicking them to the curb instead of handling them with the love of Christ, that's when sinners get hurt. But that's why our God first gives us the gospel and then intertwined in it these loving steps for how to handle the sin and sinful people. God knows that sinners, people like you and I, were fragile. And so we might want to imagine a box that has, well, fragile contents inside that says handle with care. Because what happens when you receive a fragile box and you leave it outside in the rain or hot weather? It's damage. What happens if when handling a fragile box, we throw it all around carelessly, aimlessly, harshly? It gets broken. What happens if you take a fragile box and you kick it when it's down? It's ruined. In the same way, when handling the sins of others, We need to handle it with the love of Christ. When we see sin, we don't just do nothing and leave it sit. That's not right. And that's how sinners get lost. Instead, we handle a sinner's sin with care as we carry a person and whatever they got inside, back to Christ. When you receive the news that someone has sinned, we don't throw it around carelessly, aimlessly, or harshly nor do we just throw it to someone else. That's how sinners get wrecked. Instead, we get to a second step, if we ever do, and maybe we require another set of hands to carry the fragileness of someone's sinfulness as we communicate to our brother and sister with words, tone, voice, eyes, everything, that God hates sin, but he loves sinners. Look, when you know a sinner's sin, you don't kick them when they're down. That's how sinners get hurt. When any sinner is at their lowest, that is when we, the church, Christians, work our hardest to demonstrate with self-denial and courage that we feel for them, that we love them, that we have a Savior who forgives them and leaves the 99 to be with them. Look, I have big hopes and dreams for this church. Not that we would be a massive church and all that goes with that. I really could care less about that. My big hope and and my prayer for this church is truly only that which Christ intends for his church. That's that we be a place that handles sin and sinners with the good news of Jesus, always at the forefront of our hearts and our minds that we would be a place, a place for you, a place for sinners, a place where sin gets handled spiritually and biblically the way God handles sin. That this would be a soft place to land and a safe place to fall, a place like that, because it is made up of a group of people who are so wrapped in the intimacy and the immensity of Christ's forgiveness that we can handle sin. A place so compelled by a king's love who canceled our entire debt that we don't just overlook sin, but we speak to sinners and remind them that they are covered by the blood of the lamb who has taken away the sins of the world and who throws a party for them and celebrates their homecoming. A place where we don't feel like talking about sinners when we should not, nor fear talking to sinners when we should, because we are instead a place where we handle sin in a way that connects people to Christ, to his forgiveness, and to a community that is just saturated in the gospel. Imagine a place like that. Imagine a place for you. May God grant that it's this church. Amen.